much energy, I tell you. I don't, that's for sure. I, I hear it, it doesn't get a whole lot better. Some of you can attest to that, I guess. Last week, when I got up here, I was fully aware that about 45 minutes after I was to get started, that the University of Kentucky was going to play basketball on television. Today, I'm fully aware that about 45 minutes after I get started, the team that matters, I guess, to me anyway, <laughs> the University of Louisville is going to play. So I figured we'd just close now in prayer. <laughs> Randy, you can come back up and sing. We'll be good to go. We heard a sermon. We heard a sermon. Drew, thank you for preaching to us today. But anyway, I... Uh, it's good to see you. I hope, I hope you're doing well. I know uh, I get different reports on different things, some good, some not so good, and some that I uh, know situations you'd rather not go through, and things that obviously, as we've talked about during this series, things that are unexpected. Uh, and, and, and that, I think, is sort of the theme that we've found has been true, is that we really don't know what's coming. We, we can speculate, and we have good ideas, and, you know, you think even about the leaders of our country. They, they, they think they have a good idea of what's going to happen and how they'll handle it, but obviously they don't know what's coming either. None of us do. And yet, at the same time, anybody in their right mind would say, I want to be successful with whatever it is that I'm going to face. And that's sort of the way that we've approached this. So whether you're uh, an older person, a middle-aged person, a younger person, a child, any of us would say, for the remainder of however long God allows me to be here, I don't know what I'm going to face, but I want to face it successfully. I want to come out on the other side uh, knowing that I, that I did it God's way and, and that things worked out. And so that's sort of been, the, 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 I guess, the starting point each week for us as we've looked at these different secrets of ultimate success. And and kind of to, to define it for you once again, in case you were not here or maybe you've missed a little bit or, or you've just kind of forgotten, I uh, know that can happen. Ultimate success, we found in Joshua chapter 1, is defined really as being faithful and obedient to God's Word. That is the bottom line of ultimate success. And if you do that through your life, then God determines through His own economy somehow that that is what success looks like. Now, I, I want to back up for just a second because I think that, that we can easily read in things that probably don't belong in this definition of ultimate success. And one of those is that we can read in that if you are outwardly successful, say in your business or your work or whatever it is, that there's somehow something wrong with you because you're not really pursuing ultimate success. I realize that in a room like this with this many people, we've got folks who find themselves on various ends of the economic spectrum. Uh, we have folks who are struggling, struggling financially. We have folks who are not struggling financially. And so we, we kind of have, what do we do with that? You know, I thought about that this week as we approach the subject of success, because typically we think of success as do you have more, have you made more, have you advanced, have you climbed the ladder, and so on. And, and you know, have you done well according to the scoreboard, so to speak. And, and, and so the temptation, I think at least for me, is to say, well, that stuff is not what we should ultimately pursue, so it shouldn't be pursued at all. You ever been there? You kind of get confused. I do about this. Should I, should I be a good businessman? Should I do the best that I can in my particular job? I and mean, what, what's, what, is there anything wrong if I advance in my company? And I, I want to tell you that, that very plainly, no, there's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, I believe 
that if you take this definition of ultimate success to its fullest extent, that being faithfulness and obedience to God's Word, you will find that in God's Word, He says whatever you do, do it all as if you're doing it for the Lord, which should make what you do as excellent as possible, which would then translate to your natural skills and ability being taken to their furthest level, which would then translate to if God then is in all of that and you get blessed, then glory to God, He has blessed you because you've been faithful to Him in whatever it is that you do. And so I, I don't want us to read into the fact that, well, if, if, if I'm maybe a little bit, you know, uh, doing okay financially, that somehow I should pursue poverty. Uh, poverty in the Bible is never a means to godliness. Uh, it is never the way to godliness. It is simply through that that God may develop godliness in you if He chooses to take you down that path. So here's the other end of the spectrum. And this stuff is all free, all right? This stuff is, is not on your notes, all right? You're going to think, well, golly, if he's giving us all this up front, he's not going to make it by game time. Hang on. Um, Anyway, the other end of the spectrum is this. What what if I don't have a lot? I mean, what if I don't? I mean, is there something wrong with me? Have I not been faithful and obedient to God's Word? Because if I were, I mean, wouldn't God bless me in a different way? The truth is we see in the Bible different sorts of people with different financial backgrounds. You see kings who have literally millions, if not billions of dollars worth of stuff. And then you see the lady in the New Testament who threw in her last coin. She didn't have anything. I mean, somewhere in there, there's got to be some common ground that Jesus provides for all of those people. And so the common ground is this, that ultimate success is found in being faithful and obedient to God's Word, regardless of your circumstances. And so we should put then our eyes on that particular goal of pursuing that. And then along the way, if that means that through that pursuit of ultimate success, that you become a, an outwardly successful, financially successful person, then continue to pursue being faithful and obedient to God's Word. If not, then, then you know that, I okay, that's fine, but I will still be successful according to God by being faithful and obedient to His Word. And so regardless of where you are today, this is a pursuit that we all can have and that doesn't rule anyone out. And so uh, we pick up the story today in the book of Joshua. We're going to look at chapter 6. Now this is a, this is a famous Bible story. If, if, you, if you've uh, been told Bible stories in your life, this is probably one of them that you've heard. This is the story of the Battle of Jericho. I'm not going to sing the old, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho song because I really would like for you to stick around until I get done. But this is a story that you probably know in general what happened if you've been told some Bible stories. So I'm going to take this stance. I'm going to assume that you haven't been told Bible stories, all right, because I realize that some of us in here probably haven't. So here's the overall story of Joshua chapter 6, kind of summed up. The Israelites stand on the brink of taking over what what God said is the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And they've gone through some things already, and they've kind of gotten all ready for battle, and here they go, and they've crossed this big river, and God did a miracle. We saw that uh, in, in weeks previous, and he parted the waters of this river, and it was something miraculous, and all of them crossed, and there was anywhere probably from one and a half to two million people, and here they are, and they're all camped, and and, and, and then we, we see where God says, okay, now here's the deal. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to fight against Jericho. And, and we know that in this story that God does something miraculous again. And the walls of Jericho, the city was fortified and the walls were, were around it, 
the walls of Jericho fell down, and the, the Israelite people were able to take the city of Jericho. And this is the beginning of their conquest of the promised land. And so maybe you've heard that story before. And, and my, my goal today is, is not to explain the story to you, because you can read the story for yourself, and you can understand the facts of the story. My goal today is to look at the story and see what it was about this plan of God to take this city that the Israelite people had to get on board with and, and be a part of. What was it that they were asked to do through all of this? Because what we focus on mainly, obviously, is this incredible miracle that God did, and the walls fell down. And we kind of think, well, that okay, great, that was it. But there's more to the story than that, so I, I, that's what I want us to look at. Last Sunday night, in case you weren't able to be here, we, we looked at chapter 5. So if you were here last Sunday morning, we had chapter 4, and then this Sunday we're doing chapter 6. So in between that is a really interesting piece of Scripture that doesn't seem to fit together. There, there, there are times in the Scripture when I read it and I think, why is that there and why is that together? Because that doesn't make any sense. You ever read the, read the Bible and think that? Maybe, maybe I'm just not... I don't know. Anyway, are you thinking, okay, Pastor, you're not supposed to think that. All right, I do. But chapter 5 is incredible because it kind of sets up chapter 6. Right after chapter 4, they had crossed the, the Jordan River, and, and this was, was sort of the barrier between the Israelite people where they were and the city of Jericho. So they had to get across the river. God does a miracle, parts the waters of the river. They all cross. Chapter 5 opens with, opens with the fact that God says to Joshua that you are to re restate, I guess, renew the covenant, the symbol of the covenant between God and the Israelites was circumcision. And so God says, here's the deal. All the people that were born in the wilderness uh, during the 40 years of wandering out in the wilderness, they hadn't been circumcised. So here's what you do. Take all the fighting men, all, all of them, circumcise them. Now, now here's the thing. What we looked at last Sunday night was, why on earth would, would that even be in the Bible? I mean, that's just, what are you talking about? But God said, you're going to renew the covenant. He inflicted pain on them, literal physical pain. They had to take time to recover. And so through that part, uh, between them and their enemy Jericho, there was no buffer zone. There was no river now because they'd already crossed it. So we, we see that ultimately God was going to have to take care of them. God was going to be in charge during their time of healing and recovery. And then, and then we go on, and, and, and what had been provided for them to eat for 40 years, this manna it was called, that, that miraculously appeared every single day, stopped. Now, if you've ever had something happen to you that you've just kind of been in the routine of doing for that many years and all of a sudden stopped, you'd notice. Especially if it was the way you ate. And all of a sudden you didn't have any food. But we saw how when God stopped providing one way, He started providing in another way because there were crops right around them in the land of Canaan that they began to eat on. And then the third story in chapter 5 is about an angel that shows up. Some people believe that it was God Himself, and maybe in the form of Jesus Christ, even before the New Testament. They just there's this godlike figure that shows up, and he's carrying a sword. And actually, Joshua was afraid. I would be too. Here's this godlike figure shows up with a sword. What are you doing? And he, Joshua says, "Whose side are you on?" Great question. That'd have been my first question as I run away. But he said, "Whose side are you on?" And the guy says, neither. I'm here to command the army of the Lord. Now, that's an odd thing. But what we discovered was the fact that it didn't matter whether or not that angel was on Joshua's side. What mattered was, was Joshua on his side. And so 
We, we see through all of those things that set us up for this particular chapter that God was in charge. He protected them while they were healing. He provided for them when He stopped in one way and started in another. And He was going to fight for them because He was their commander. And so we see that Joshua himself was not in charge, though he was a great leader. The Israelite people were not in charge, though they were the chosen people of God. But God himself was going to be in charge, which gets us to chapter 6. And so we're going to look today at, at what is this unconventional plan of God. I don't know about you, but in my life I have often thought, God, what are you doing? I don't know if you have the sort of relationship with God where you feel as if you can ask some questions from time to time. And maybe your relationship with Him has been such that that's all you do, and maybe you uh, seem very intimidated sort of by the Lord, but I I tell you, there have been times when I just said, God, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, What are you doing? I mean, it just seems completely unconventional. Why would you do that? You know, and I'm not trying to say that from a blasphemous sort of non-spiritual position, but, but in my relationship with God, it's just like, man, this just doesn't seem to be right. And so as we look today at the plan of God, there, there obviously will be times when, and I believe almost always, that it will almost always seem unconventional. Think about it this way. What God does as we see in the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is sort of the opposite of what everybody else would have done during that particular time. If you look at at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 6, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there if you'd like. Check it out. It says, Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. They had camped outside, so they strongly fortified the city. No one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've handed Jericho, its king and its fighting men, over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have priests carry seven ram's horns trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all of the people give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the people will advance, each man straight ahead. Now we read that story and we just think, okay, that's cool. Bible story. Big deal. Do you realize that they're, they're staring down a city that's completely fortified, and, and the plan of God, their commander who showed up in chapter 5 to say, I'm in charge, with a sword no less, thinking, let's go take them, says, march around the city. Just do it once. And then for, for six days, once you do that, once every, every day. And then on the last day, I want you to do it seven times. And what's going to go before you is the Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the Lord's presence. You're going to have priests and stuff leading the way. These guys didn't fight. They were priests. The plan of God at this point, if if you look at the story just from a completely non-spiritual perspective, it just seems like, what? That's your battle tactic? Start walking around the city and then blow some trumpets and scream real loud? And something crazy is going to happen, and we're going to win. I mean, does, does the plan of God sometimes not to you seem just a little bit odd? What are you talking about? And, and so I, I believe that the plan of God it will almost always seem unconventional. This was not 
the battle tactic of the day that everybody used. I mean, this wasn't going to be just, okay, yeah, God, we've done that before. That makes sense. Yeah, let's do that again. Because it worked, you know, back, you know, a few years later, a few years earlier. Walk around the city. Okay, let's march. And then, all right, that's it. And then do it again tomorrow. And then seven times on the last day. And then blow some trumpets, scream real loud, and we win. But if you think about the plan of God throughout the entire Bible, you think about what Jesus said. You think about the Sermon on the Mount, when his, his first real discourse or teaching moment, when he, when he sort of twists everything around. He says, you know, you've heard it said that this, but, you know, I tell you that this is the way it ought to be. And Jesus goes on to say, you know, if someone asks you to go one mile with them, you ought to go two. Somebody asks for, for one piece of, of clothing from you, you ought to give them all the stuff that you got on as well. Just... Just if, if, if your enemies do something to you, you ought to return that with love. Is that if somebody strikes you on one cheek, you ought to turn the other cheek. I mean, the plan of God has always been unconventional. And being a Christian is completely unconventional. I mean, when Jesus started doing miracles and all that stuff, everybody was cheering, yeah, that's great. But when He says, if you want to follow Me, deny yourself and take up your cross... And follow me. Consider others better than yourself. I mean, that's an unconventional plan. I, I believe that we'll find that throughout the Christian life, it's, it's almost always unconventional. God doesn't operate according to the way that we think He ought to operate. And so as we look at this plan of God, maybe you've been confused about it before, understand that if you've been confused and thought it's unconventional, you're probably right on. Because almost always, it's unconventional. And the second thing... <clears throat> And that maybe we, we don't first realize is that this plan of God, though it's always almost always unconventional, it, it leads to rest. It, it leads to rest. And, 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 and let, me, let me show it to you this way. You'll see these scriptures on the screen as well. In, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 13, Joshua is readying the people in, kind of at the beginning of this story to take the promised land. And he says, Remember what Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you when he said, The Lord your God will give you rest. And he will give you this land. And then if you look on the screen in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, while the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear so that none of you should miss it. And then Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, maybe you've heard this scripture before, but he says it this way. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's this theme throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the time of Jesus to the time after Him, that this, this idea that God wants us to have what He calls rest. Now, we think of rest and we think, well, good, I'm going to take a nap, I'm going to get some sleep, I'm going to not do anything for a while. I'm just going to kind of kick back and take it easy. <clears throat> now, that's not exactly the kind of rest that God is talking about. But His theme is that He has good things planned for us and that His plan really leads to rest. Listen to some of these definitions of, of what these biblical words of rest mean. Satisfaction. Favor. Completeness. Security. I mean, think about those words for just a second. Satisfaction. And how many times in your life have you felt dissatisfied with where you are? For whatever reason, maybe it's just nagging, maybe you can't figure it out, maybe you don't know why, but you just don't feel complete. You just feel like something's missing, or things just don't feel real secure in your life. 
I like this one, the recovery of breath. You ever just feel out of breath in life? I mean, just like, if it doesn't slow down sometime soon, some bad things are going to happen. I just want to catch my breath. Restoration of lost strength and inner peace, even during work. That's one of the biblical definitions of rest. The, the restoration of lost strength. You ever just feel weak? And, and maybe we don't admit it. You know, maybe we, we're too good at acting and so on in, in, in front of people, but we just think, oh, golly, I, I'm just, I'm empty. I'm weak. The restoration of lost strength and inner peace, even during work. And then inward tranquility. When God promised rest, to the Israelites. There's no doubt that when we pick up this story and we understand that that's what his plan was leading, there's no doubt that they wanted rest. They had wandered for 40 years in the desert. Literally two weeks away, if they went straight ahead, two weeks away from their destination. And it took them 40 years to get there. God had promised this rest a long time ago. Surely after 40 years, they're desperate to experience God's rest. I mean, think of Joshua. He was born into slavery in Egypt. He was one of the two spies out of the twelve that originally, 40 years before, brought back a good report and said, we can take them. Let's go now. And by no fault of his own, wandered in the desert for 40 years until all the people who didn't trust God were dead. He had to, he had to be desperate for this rest that God had promised. Maybe you're the same way. And you say, God, I, I don't want money from you. I don't want anything that I can get my hands on. God, I just something on the inside's got to change. I mean, I've got to settle down. I've got to catch my breath. Maybe you've felt that way. The plan of God throughout the Scriptures we see both in Joshua, later in Hebrews, and then right in the middle in the time of Jesus, the plan of God leads to that rest, to that satisfaction, that completeness in Him, that recovery of breath. And so if that's what it is, it's unconventional, but it leads to rest, then there's something then in the rest of this story in Joshua 6 that's going to get them to the point where they can experience all of that. And so it requires something of us. And this is where we'll sort of spend our, our, our closing moments as we, as we look at what the plan of God requires from us. First of all, it requires faith. Without a doubt, when you read verses 1 through 5 from a rational standpoint, and God says the new battle tactic is to march around the city six times, once each day for six days, and then, and then on, on the seventh day do it seven times, and then scream, blow some trumpets, and the walls will fall down. It would take some serious faith to believe that that's actually going to happen. Because that was not a typical battle tactic. Now, they weren't just people who were just out there wandering around who weren't in battle formation and battle gear. They had men of war with them. They could have very easily said, God, that, that doesn't make sense. You know, yeah, that's cool. That would work in a spiritual world and all that stuff, but we've got to go fight. I mean, we've we got to take care of business. It took some faith for them to say, okay. We, we, we know that our lack of faith 40 years earlier cost us 40 years in the desert, so maybe we ought to trust God in this one. You ever been there? You ever not trusted God and then just sort of wander around for a while and all of a sudden, you know, it just kind of hits you again and you just say, you know what? 
I'm, I'm not going to be foolish anymore. Maybe I ought to trust God for once in my life. Maybe I ought to do what I know the Scripture says that I ought to do. I mean, in order for them to receive this rest, God's favor, His smile upon them, I mean, it, it would take faith to believe that this plan then was really going to work, that His plan ultimately would lead to rest. So it, it, took, it took faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That please, re- receiving His favor, requires that we put our faith in Him. And it, not only does it require faith, but it requires obedience. Look at verses 12 to 13. It'll be on the screen. This is right after uh, God told them, here's how it's going to happen. <clears throat> Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests of the, uh, took the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying seven trumpets marched in front of the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed troops went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the ark. Early the next morning, the Bible says Joshua got up, and they did what God said for them to do. The plan wasn't going to be fulfilled just through supernatural means. God had done some amazing things, and maybe He's done some amazing things in your life. But they realized it's going to take our obedience. We're going to have to do something in order to see the plan of God fulfilled. It's not just going to be sit back, wait for the walls to fall down, and then for God to kill all the people that we need to be killed because then we'll just take over. It was going to happen through a combination of God's work and their obedience. And our lives are no different. In order for us to receive the rest the completeness, the favor that He's promised us. It's going to take Him working on our behalf and us doing our part. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Getting the land that God had promised them was conditional upon their trusting and obeying Him completely. Not only does it take faith and obedience, but it takes discipline. The plan of God requires discipline. Look in verse 14. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. This one, this would have been the hardest part for me. I have to admit to you that it, maybe, it's ba- maybe it's generational, maybe it's cultural. I have no idea why. But I believe that in... in People my age, and I think it's becoming, a, it's permeating our society even more. I, I think we like to shortcut things. I, I think we like to, to say, well, okay, well, I can start, kind of see the destination. I mean, they could. They saw, oh, here's the promised land. And, and we see, yeah, th- that the walls are going to fall down. We see what, what, what's there, and, and yet we lack the discipline to do what it takes to get there. The Bible makes it clear that on, they did it on the first day, and then they returned. I mean, they could have just gone ahead and marched around seven times. I mean, just kind of shortcut the process. Or do, you know, all 13 times all at once. Why not? This, this area of Jericho only covered five or six acres. It's not like it was, you know, marching around, you know, one of the major cities here in the United States. I mean, they could have done it. it. took obedience. The truth is, most of the time, most of the time I really believe that our temptation is that we want something for nothing. And, and, and even more so than that, we believe we can get it. I think our culture and, and our, our society has convinced us that discipline is just something for people who really don't know all the shortcuts and all the slick ways of getting things done. Because if they did, they surely wouldn't spend that amount of time practicing that and doing those kind of things. I mean, good grief, just go and do it. Just go and make it happen. We actually believe, I think, that we can get to where we want to be or where God wants us to be without discipline. 
Think about the athletes that we, that we have revered through time. And think about the people that you maybe grew up watching, or maybe you still do, if there's anybody like that. And you know, when I was playing baseball in high school and college, there were certain players that I tried to emulate, I tried to be like. And you know, most of the time I thought about being like them was in the way that I wore my uniform. You know, I, I wanted to look like a certain player. I wanted to, you know, wear my glove a certain way or stand at the plate in a batting stance in a certain way. That was how I was going to emulate that player. And it, it was all about during the game was when I was going to do that. I was going to act like a good baseball player during the game. What I failed to, to, to realize was that that three hours that I would watch that guy play baseball on television paled in comparison to the hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of training and practice and little bitty things that that guy did to get himself ready to be that good in that game. And it hit me this week that, you know, a lot of times what we want to do as Christians, what we want to do as people is to say, I'm just going to go and kind of outwardly act like I can make this happen. I'm going to go get this. I'm going to be good in the game of life, but I don't know about all the stuff that goes behind it. Why are there so few really, really, really good people at what they do? I mean, think about your line of work. Who's at the very top? Who, who is it that you just say, you know, they're the best at what they do? I mean, they are abs- They just got it. They, they, whatever they seem to do, they're just, man, they're good. Guarantee you nine times out of ten, if not more than that. That person that you see that's so good at what they're doing, they have hours upon hours upon hours of whatever it is that's preparation to get them to be good at what everybody sees them doing. The truth is, in the Christian life, we cannot expect that in those moments that define us, the moments where we're face-to-face with, okay, now I've got to act like a Christian, and all of a sudden we're going to be able to pull it out of the bag somewhere and, and just do it if we have not taken the time to put in the hours upon hours of discipline that it takes in the small little things along the way, to follow God's plan exactly, to be disciplined. And Jesus Himself talked about it when He called His disciples and when He had them walk around with Him, He, he, he had them take on a very disciplined life. And, and in that, we see that we are to emulate not only what Jesus did on the outside, turning the other cheek, loving his enemies. All the things that we know, well, okay, well, I can go and do that. I can pretend that that's really part of my heart. I'll just do that, and maybe that'll count something toward God. And instead of just doing that, we need to take on not only his outward life, but his inward life, which was centered in prayer, which was centered in knowing the Scripture. Jesus, as a young Hebrew boy, when he shows up at age 12 teaching in the temple, I don't know if you know this or not, but typically those, those young men that would have been in the temple around those priests and, and other rabbis and so on would have memorized the, the entire five, first five books of the Old, the Old Testament. Now, I read this past week for a class that I'm taking, all 50 chapters of Genesis and the first 18 chapters of Exodus. I didn't memorize any of it. That's a lot of stuff. You ever tried to read through those books? 
you get, well, I'm, I'm really anxious to get to Leviticus. That's just some interesting stuff there in Leviticus, isn't it? They memorized all that stuff. Jesus knew the Scripture. He spent time with it. The Bible he had was the Old Testament. He read it. And he knew it. He spent time in solitude. There are moments recorded in the, Old, in, excuse me, in the New Testament, the Gospels, where he would just remove himself from the crowds and go spend time. He spent time fasting in order to prepare for just the beginning of his ministry. And actually, preparing to be tempted, he spent 40 days without anything to eat or drink. Jesus was a disciplined guy. And we see his miracles, and we see his teaching, and we see all the things on the outside, and we say, oh, that's what I want to do. Because he had a crowd following him. What we fail to realize as Christians is that, yeah, we should emulate him on the outside. But before all that happens, we've got to imitate him in his lifestyle. I heard it this way. I was reading a book this week, and listen to this. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend to do what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. Been there? You wanted good things. You wanted to really walk with God. And you just say, oh man, I want to be the Christian. I want to be the person that God wants me to be. But then in your heart, you know, I just don't live that life every day. I don't put myself in positions of prayer and in positions of studying the Bible and positions of fasting and, and just getting alone with God. I don't do those things that would ultimately give me the end that I'm looking for. And it's through practicing the disciplines that Jesus did that that's how we become like Him. How do you become like Jesus? Some people would say, well, you need to show up at church, and then you need to go and do this, and then you need to go and do this afterward. And most of the time we focus on all the outward things we ought to be going out and doing. How do you really become like Jesus in your heart, which is where it matters and where everything's got to start? You become like Him through practicing the lifestyle that he practiced. And that's one of discipline, one of prayer, one of knowing the Bible, one of being alone with God, one of fasting. They're called the spiritual disciplines. The Israelites, for an entire week, had to be disciplined and wait for what they knew was already going to happen. It was inevitable that God was going to give them that land, but they had to do their part, be disciplined. This week, I'd like for us, if we could, I, and, and uh, this is not, there's no, no test at the end of the week, but I'd like for you to consider how maybe one of the spiritual disciplines that maybe you'd say, you know what, that's really where I, I'm just lacking. Maybe it's in prayer. Maybe it's just in being alone with God, just in, in times of silence. Maybe it's, maybe it's in studying the Word, the Bible. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I, I'm going to begin this week the Israelites marched around that city for seven days. For the next seven days, I'm going to see what life is like if I just begin to practice this discipline. Uh, you'll see on the back of your bulletin, down toward the bottom, under all the notes, there's a little web address for a blog. And, and whether you're on a computer or not, that's no big deal. But if you are uh, and you want to follow along, I'm, I'm going, to, going to be posting some things that will describe some of the various spiritual disciplines. Maybe through some stuff that uh, some other folks have have published and read and so on, and, and just kind of give us an idea of what, what, what is prayer? I mean, what does it really mean to study the Bible? Are we just reading it? 
what should fasting be all about? Those kinds of things. So for the next seven days, I'll just highlight one of those. Now, I don't expect you on those days, you're going to have to do that, you know, exactly what it says. That's not the point. But I'd like for us to consider, if we're going to become like Jesus, both individually and collectively, we've got to practice the lifestyle he practiced. So maybe we get an idea uh, throughout the week on how that works. So if you'd like to follow along with that, uh, then, then I'll be posting those beginning in the morning <clears throat> for the next seven days. Not only does it take faith and obedience and discipline, discipline is where we camped out for the longest time. Relax. I think of all the things in this story, the idea that the, that the Israelites would be disciplined enough to keep circling that city and go around it again and then go back to their camp and do their normal activities and then get up the next morning and circle that thing again and then do exactly what God says. It's just amazing to me. Not only does it require those things, it also requires effort. <clears throat> Look at verse 20. <clears throat> so the people shouted, and the trumpets sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout, and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with a sword, every man and woman, both young and old, every ox, sheep, and donkey. The story for us often ends with, and the walls came tumbling down. That, that's sort of where the story ends. But for the Israelites, that's just beginning. Because they advanced into the city and had to take it. It still required some effort on their, their part. Did God show up in an, in an unbelievable way? You bet. But did God say, all right, that's it. All these people now are just going to turn their lives over to you and, and they're going to bow down to you? No, those people were ready to fight. Those walls fell down and the people of Jericho were ready to defend their city. And in order for them to take that particular city and then continue on their way. This was the very beginning of their conquest of the promised land in order to reach the rest that God wanted for them. They had to fight. And there are going to be battles in your life that you just think, God, if your ultimate plan for me is to give me rest, why am I up against this? God, you knock these walls down and take out that whole problem for me. God, you can do that. And God said, you're absolutely right, I can do that. You know, I tell you what, I'll do my part if you'll do yours. You give your effort and I'll meet you halfway. I'll do my part. God may totally take care of the whole problem, but I guarantee you this, that through your life as a Christian, you will have to exert effort in order to see God's plan realized in your life. There is nothing in the Bible that just says that we get to sit back sort of in a country club and relax while God does everything for us. Nothing that says that. Is God great? Is He miraculous? Is He all-powerful? Absolutely. But there's something that He's created in the way that He relates to us that requires our effort. They still had to fight. In fact, this was just the beginning of their battles. And they'll go on, if you read the rest of the book of Joshua, they'll fight battle after battle after battle after battle until finally, until finally, they have conquered all that God said go and take and they receive the rest from God. And finally, it requires purity. This is sort of, I guess, one of the controversial things of the book of Joshua. And I'm not going to try to get into it all. I'm not going to try to help you understand everything because, quite honestly, I'm not sure that if we spent an entire Sunday morning talking about all this that we could solve all the issues. But check it out in verse 17. But, every, but the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute 
and everyone with her in the house will live, because she hid the men we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster on it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. The controversial part of this is that they literally were told by God to destroy everything and everybody. No one, young, old, anywhere in between, no one was to survive. You may say, well, how does that reconcile with this loving God that we're supposed to know? Somehow, in God's plan, in His grace of giving the Israelites this land, it was also a curse on the sinfulness and the absolute godlessness of the people of Canaan that God was getting rid of all of that. God had had enough of their sinfulness and their godlessness and them serving only themselves. And so He was using not only the Israelites to give them rest, but He was using them as His judgment on sin and His judgment on godlessness. I'm not going to try, as I said, to fully explain all of that because we can take a long, long time. There are people a lot smarter than me that still don't know the answers to all that stuff. But what we can look at and say is that in order for the Israelites to to realize the rest and the ultimate plan of God to lead them into this restful place, they had to destroy everything that was not of God. Everything that was impure had to be taken out. Everything that was sinful was to be gotten rid of. And in our lives, in order for us to see really what God wants to do, it's no different. We cannot, as you well know, live a dual life, half in sin and half in following God, because it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads in circles, and we keep going around and around and around. Maybe you've been there. And God says, if you want to really understand where I'm taking you, then you've got to do some drastic things in your life. There's probably somebody here, maybe a few people here, who you say, you know what, there's some sin in my life. There's something I know that is not of God. And I've tried just willpower, I've tried everything I can, but it's not going away. Maybe there's something drastic that needs to happen in your life. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some form of accountability, drastic accountability, that you just be open and honest with somebody and say, here's what I'm dealing with, and I expect you every single day to ask me about it. Maybe there's something in your life you just say, this is the cause of my problem, and I'm getting rid of that out of my life. I don't even know what it is. But the Israelites were to take drastic measures to get rid of the impurities. And in our lives, it's no different. If we are to realize the plan of God, we're going to understand it It will almost always seem unconventional. God, this doesn't make sense. I know you got something good, but that doesn't make sense. It will lead to rest. God wants you to be complete, to be satisfied in Him. And it will require faith. It will require obedience. It will require daily discipline to follow the path that Jesus walked in prayer and Scripture and so on. It will require effort There will be battles to fight, and it will require purity. If you are desperate enough to really know God, to really be the person that He has called you to be, to realize the rest that He wants you to have, you will take the drastic measures 
to walk in purity. And you might say, well, okay, well, that's great, but, you know, so what? I mean, what, what does all this kind of culminate with? I put on the screen a little bit earlier, and, and you don't have to turn there. It won't be on the screen this time. Matthew chapter 11. We'll close with these two scriptures as we kind of wrap this up. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says this. Jesus is talking, and he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus talks about rest. Come to him to find rest, not anywhere else. Come to him. And then Matthew chapter 4. In verse 18 it says this, And he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus called those disciples, when he later promised them rest, he was calling them not just to observe what he did on the outside, but he was calling them to follow him in such a way that they would imitate every single thing that he did. In order for us, in order for you to become the person that truly follows Jesus, when he says, follow me, he says, take on my lifestyle. What he did, those times of prayer, those times of study, those times of solitude, those times of fasting, those things have to be what we do as well. And through that, through that, when we come to Him, He will give us the rest that our souls are looking for. Maybe you're a person who says, I've been walking with God for a long time, but I haven't experienced rest. Get involved doing what Jesus did when nobody was looking. Begin doing those things. Maybe you say, you know, I've I just kind of been wandering through life and I don't, I don't have any rest at all. Jesus said, come to me. Come to Jesus and He will give you the rest that you're looking for. You will find peace in no one else but Jesus Christ. You will find salvation in no one else, the Bible says, but Jesus Christ. And Don't leave here today without being sure that you're on that path that leads to rest. That you know Jesus in that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your plan. And God, I know I've been confused by it before and it's unconventional, and yet, God, I know that your word says that you work out everything for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And so, God, I pray you'd help us to trust you, to place our faith in you in the times where it just doesn't make sense. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to be obedient, to be disciplined, God, to exert the effort that's required on our part to see your plan realized. And God, for us to take drastic measures to remain as pure as possible. God, thank you that when you called your disciples, Jesus, you said, come and follow me and I'll give you rest because what you give us is true peace. You said, not as the world gives, but it's true peace, true completeness, true wholeness. God, may we take advantage of it today. 
Help us to follow you in a way that, that leads to life. Not just in the outward things, but in every single discipline that you showed us while you were here on earth. God, thank you that, that when the Israelites walked around that city through discipline and obedience, God, that you came through. And you're always true to your word, and we believe that, and we trust you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand?